Allah doesn't want plastic. So all of our emotions can be used as fuel. Reveal, release, and replenish. Welcome to another episode of Coffee with Kareem. I am your host, Kareem Sirajuddin, founder of Nude Human Consulting, where we help people think brilliant, feel brighter, and do better. Visit nudehuman.com to take advantage of our autumn promos this season. Dr. Azada Weber, who is a fellow provider at Nude Human Consulting, joins me once again. She recently did a fantastic episode called Spiritual Bypassing, episode 58. Azada has a doctorate in clinical psychology. She specializes in overcoming trauma, anxiety, stress, and does a lot of her focus with women and relationship work. Azada, welcome back to the show. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you for having me on the show again, Kareem. Azada, tell us more about what we're going to be unpacking today and sharing for the audience, inshallah. We're going to be talking about building a toolbox of psychological coping strategies to overcome anxiety and stress and um, with emphasis on Islamic education. Excellent. Excellent. So let's let's start with um, talking about anxiety and stress, just b- basic terms. Now, is there a difference between these two words? They're often linked together in a lot of, you know, well-being or educational seminars. Why are they often linked together, Azada, anxiety and stress? I think that anxiety is more, it creates more functional impairments and like social health and occupational or spiritual like functioning. But stress is just a normal part of life. When stress gets to be too much and a person can't manage it, it leads to states of anxiety. Anxiety is a cluster of symptoms like feeling restless, on edge, being easily fatigued, having difficulty concentrating. Maybe your mind goes blank frequently. Um, You're irritable muscle tension and some sleep disturbance. So a combination of some of some or all of those symptoms is anxiety. Thank you so much. Now, can anxiety and stress be a good thing and or a bad thing? Like I sometimes feel like there's some there's a difference between good stress and bad stress. So for example, good stress is my adorable children won't stop, you know, asking me to hug them. And then bad stress is like I broke my ankle and I I can't walk for two weeks. Like that sucks. So is is that a proper way to maybe think about stress, that there's good and bad? And can you tell us a little bit more about that from your knowledge? There is good and bad stress. And it's important to have a healthy relationship to stress and even a healthy relationship to anxiety. Anxiety and stress within a normal range could actually improve our performance and it can improve our functioning. There's something called the Yerkes-Dodson Law, and there's two researchers, the law's based on their last name. So it's Yerkes and Dodson. Around uh, early 1900s, they came up with this understanding of stress where it's like a U-shaped curve. If you have too little stress, they found that people's performance was low. Maybe you can think of it in terms of if my life is too too comfortable and I never go out of my comfort zone, how I'm not going to develop. Also, if you have too much stress and anxiety. This is also hard to develop in this sort of an atmosphere too. For example, if someone has like a traumatic, uh, chronic traumatic experiences in their, their life, um, this can this sort of stress and anxiety can affect their development. 
And I, and I want to differentiate between anxiety and stress that is external that a person can't control and anxiety and stress that a person can control. Like we can't control our negative thoughts and how our negative thoughts lead to anxiety and stress. We can't control if there's a war going on in our environment. Um, so what the Yerkes, uh, or we can't control like if there's a lot of toxins in the air. Uh, what Yerkes, uh Dodson Law tells us is that there's a sweet spot for stress and anxiety. There, it's not too little or it's not too much. It's a, you know, the normal range of stress anxiety that that can actually help us and we can leverage that stress and anxiety to become better people. Got it. So when we try to leverage stress and anxiety, is this now what we're talking about with coping mechanisms? And I, I love the idea of, you know, a little bit of stress or even anxiety sometimes can kind of almost keep our engine revving. Um, I kind of think about the analogy of when you drive a car, if you give the, you know, while it's on, you you press the gas, uh, it's going to get you places. You need some fuel, some heat, some energy. But if I, you know, you know, put the pedal all the way down, what happens is I can actually flood the engine and damage it. So if I have too much stress or anxiety, it's like you can get flooded with that charge and that could actually, you know, render me stagnant or stuck or damaged versus a little bit of fuel, if you will, kind of keeps that revving going. And perhaps this is what you mean by, you know, some stress or some uh, anxiety can actually be a catalyst for growth or a catalyst for momentum, perhaps. Can you explain it to us how that might work a bit? Sure. So all of our emotions can be used as fuel if we cope with them and we have a healthy relationship to them and we accept. So that means that at a fundamental level, we have to accept that these emotions are there, that they're part of who we are. And by accepting them, um, we can take a pause and we can choose how we want to cope with them. And do we want to cope with them in a sophisticated way or in a primitive way. So for example, if let's say I, I smoke cigarettes, which I don't, but let's just, let's just say, so I'm a, and I, and someone calls me out on smoking cigarettes and I, um, this gives me anxiety and stress because I don't like to be singled out as doing something that's socially frowned upon. So I, I could respond primitively through denial and say, no, I'm just a social smoker. I only do this, you know, once in a while. Or I could respond in a sophisticated way and be like, accept that, yes, I feel anxious about the fact that I'm smoking. And I can respond with my intellectualization, which is a sophisticated coping mechanism. And I can start educating myself on the medical terminology of what smoking does and 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 so this is just in the, in the Western concept. They have this psychology. They have this uh, sophisticated and primitive coping styles. And, and intellectualization is thought of to be a sophisticated coping skill. In Islamic psychology, I think that we can take intellectualization as a coping skill one step further by linking it to one of the eight types of hearts mentioned in the Quran, which is the blind heart. Um, because the blind heart is mentioned in um, Surah Al-Hajj 2246. Um, the blind heart is a heart that does not use its intellect to see the obvious signs 
that God shows us and to learn from wisdom from these signs and reflections. So I could start out by educating myself on the biological systems and how smoking affects the biological systems. And then I can soften my heart and see like, oh, wow, this beating of the heart and how the breath connects to the heart. You know, this is clearly a sign of the glory of Allah. Yeah. And, and that's one way that we can uh, cope with our anxiety and stress in a, a healing way. So just to summarize here, a sophisticated coping mechanism from what I gathered there is when, you know, in a Western model, it's when there's intellectualization or perhaps, you know, kind of researching on science more to get evidence for certain internal claims, right? Like, oh, smoking isn't a big deal, but a sophisticated defense mechanism would be, you know, let me be real here. I mean, on every box, it says, you you know, this causes cancer, be careful, warning. Uh, so then that's a person who's like essentially being honest with themselves and sincere and, and doing that work. And Islamically, uh, the Islamic psychological dimension that you're adding here is there is a notion of a blind heart or a heart that does not use its intellect. So similarly, there's a sense of denial here, not being sincere, and not facing reality as it is. So if, if that's accurate, then how would we define a primitive? Is that now like something that's animalistic or impulsive or just dishonest? I mean, how would we define uh, a primitive coping mechanism? I think it's a bad habit. Um, in, in a lot of ways, it's like not it's not exercising free will and choice. It's not taking, it's not accepting that the emotion is happening and taking that pause and making a choice and thinking about the consequences of how am I going to relate to this emotional experience I'm having and what are the consequences of that relation, relationship? It's it just acting out, if you will. I do want to say that not all Western coping mechanisms involve intellectualization. I mean, there is, they do mention humor and, um, um, like altruism and like, uh, sublimation where I might, I might take my anxiety and transform it and, and channel it into something else. Like I might be anxious. So I channel it into exercise and so, so it's not just uh, intellectual, but there they do uh, have an emphasis on intellectualization, on rationalization. I like how in Islamic psychology, how the notion of the blind heart reminds us to tie in our intellectualization and our rationalization into, um, you know, uh, pondering the obvious signs of Allah. Right. Well, thank you for clarifying that. So I, what I learned there was sophisticated coping mechanisms isn't just intellectualization. That's just not one form. There's altruism, sublimation. So are now we're, this is is this synonymous now with defense mechanisms, which is um, you know how the ego or the self protects itself from discomfort or pain or agitation. And there's multiple levels uh, of defense mechanisms that all of us use on a daily basis, right? Some of them are more dangerous. Some of them, uh, or excuse me, some of them are very severe and some of them are, let's say, mild. Can you maybe um, tell us more about defense mechanisms and how they work exactly? And is this what we're going to be uh, addressing here with these coping mechanisms? Yes. Yeah, so they are synonymous coping mechanisms and defense mechanisms. Defense mechanisms was something that was brought out um, and discussed by Dr. Sigmund Freud. 
So I do think that, you know, it's good to, that he made this differentiation of primitive and sophisticated coping mechanisms because it helps us to name um, what's going on in order to claim our behavior. It's, it's this little kind of rule, like name it to claim it. So when I can name my emotion, I am more able to claim it and, you know, make the decision on how I want to act, you know, primitive or sophisticated. However, I do want to point out the limitation I feel with Dr. Freud's work is that his work is based upon, it was in a philosophical time of reductionism when the spirit was taken out of uh, the human you know, experience. So like the psychological science that he came up with doesn't incorporate the spirit. Um, however, I do think that when that we can use his concepts of defense mechanisms and um, add in like the notion of the spirit and then and that's where I bring in the blind heart and how like this softening of the heart um, can lead us to us integrate the spirit into our life. So now maybe what we can do is take um, a scenario here and see how all this stuff would work. So I'd like to maybe define an external scenario and an internal scenario, and then we can see how primitive and sophisticated coping skills would look and feel in each one. What do you think, Azada? Sounds good to me. Let's do it. Johnny is on his way to work. And uh, he takes the same route every day. One morning when he's, you know, getting on the subway, he's in a cart that's kind of empty. There's barely anybody there. It's early in the morning. And somebody basically pulls a gun on him and takes his wallet. Uh, that's That would be an external major stressor or anxiety for a person. So what would be a primitive way that potentially a person would deal with this and a sophisticated way? So I would say... A primitive way is the person in the moment of being robbed feels disempowered and they don't feel that they can address their uh, the person who, who robbed them. So they go home and they use a primitive coping mechanism called of displacement called kick the dog or kick the cat, if you will. Yeah. Take out all their anger on the people who live with them in their home, like their spouse or their children. Right. So basically what you're describing here is, you know, whether my boss yelled at me at work or, you know, somebody robbed me, I feel disempowered, I feel humiliated, I feel weak and fragile. And sometimes what the human being will do as a primitive coping me mechanism is I want to regain that sense of power, security, strength and might. And maybe the way I can do that, since I can't, you know, get it back from the robber or yell back at my boss, I'm going to go home and, you know, make myself kind of above and, and aggressive perhaps to my family members. Like I start picking at my wife or my kids for things so I can regain that sense of power, protection of myself perhaps. Is that what you mean? Yes, exactly. And like for in a workplace setting, which I did some studies in a workplace setting, it's like if somebody high in an organization abuses one of their subordinates, their subordinate can't address their boss necessarily or doesn't feel comfortable addressing their boss so they might be in sort of a middle management position and they might ha start uh abusing the people that report to them so it yeah. becomes a parallel process at play this is a primitive defense mechanism of dealing with anxiety and stress and so how would we maybe approach that scenario 
um, whether it's the robbery or my boss has been, you know, humiliating me or yelling at me, but I can't really address those items with this individual. How, what would be a way that we could start considering would be sophisticated or a higher self? And even I would say Islamically, it's like, how do you have more patience and wisdom and character in dealing with these issues or trials that you go through in your life? It, taking with the example of the robbery, what comes to mind um, is a more sophisticated way of dealing with this is through sublimation, which would be uh, transforming the emotions of stress and anxiety into productive outlets. So maybe a person could, like in, in a best case scenario, they start advocacy for safer you know, communities. Or like they might transform their emotions of stress and anxiety to be like, was I robbed because like, and I don't want to victim blame at all, but like, was I robbed because like I was flashing my watch around, my expensive watch. And and maybe like I can, uh, you know, start talking to my friends and families about, you know, the virtues of uh, modesty and, and, and what are, what's a safety plan I can come up with to make the chance of this happening to, to me or someone I love less in the future. Now, would that that would be an example of intellectualization, like when you're, the person's trying to really think about this, like, you know, yes, it sucks that I was robbed and we're not blaming necessarily the victim here. But, you know, there is a part of us that could go, well, you know, was I staring at my phone the whole time and I didn't, you know, I wasn't aware of my surroundings, let's say. And that could have, let's say, you know, given you a little more time or even allowed you to pick up on the shady dude who's staring at you with his hand in his pocket. Who knows, right? But that's, you know, something that a person can reflect on after the fact. That would be, let's say, intellectualization. Is that correct? Yeah, I think it it, and then that would be intellectualization. And you can even combine these things. So you could do the intellectualization and then add in some sublimation of how can I transform this anxiety into something proactive. You could use humor to kind of, sh- in a way, to kind of take the edge off of it as well. Well, I want to come back to humor because that's a good one. Um, but let's let's unravel sublimation a bit because I think this one is really powerful, uh, sophisticated mechanism. Um, a coping skill. So this idea of transferring the energy or the charge mm-hmm. um, from that negative uh, experience into a more productive or creative or I want to say action-based process to replace that very evil. Because I think this is one of the ways um, a sophisticated uh, coping mechanism also works is, you know, how do I take something that was bad or difficult or challenging and make it good or useful or valuable or productive, whether for myself or others, right? Because this is how we want to channel it. So two things come to mind. You know, a lot of people that I've worked with, with, let's say, sexual addictions or pornography addictions or, you know, difficulty lowering their gaze, etc. It's like we have a saying, you know, how do I change my lust into gifts? You know, in other words, every time I'm, I'm sexually charged or aroused doesn't necessitate that it has to come out sexualized. Just like I say, you know, we've all been angry or upset, but if we all impulsively or primitively, you know, responded with our anger every single time we did get angry. Um, many of us would be in a, you know, a bad rapport right now with with our society or our family, or our friends, our jobs. And so, similarly, 
Anger, like sexual energy or fear or anxiety, these are all emotional charges and energies that ex that are accumulating in the person's system. And so it either stays lodged in or it's going to come out. And if it comes out, it's either going to come out in a uh, productive or creative or healthy action-based fashion or not. One way I like to think about sublimation is when you feel a loss of control, which is a lot of times what happens with anxiety, like you lose predictability um, in your environment or you, um, and this loss of predictability is experienced as loss of control or something happens to you and you feel loss of control like the robbery. Um, what can you do to regain your sense of control that can be positive? have an overall positive net effect. I like to encourage people to exercise, use exercise in a situation like this. Like I might be at work and I feel like a loss of control. For example, if I work for an organization, I, I once worked for a company and um, I feel loss of control because everyone's getting fired around me. And how can I deal with this loss of control? I like going to exercise because exercise is something I can control. Um, I, I can go exercise. I can exert control over my body to do repetitions of an exercise. And this will start to turn things around for me and have a positive effect on my well-being. There's um, something called the James Lang theory of emotion that says people evaluate their physical uh, physiological states and then determine that this is how I feel. So, you know, if you can, um, slow down your breathing, uh, slow down your heart rate, um, your body's, your brain's going to tell you, Oh, I'm relaxing. Interesting. In order for the mechanism of sublimation to be optimized, Azada, do I have to consciously consider why I am initiating this ritual of control? Like, for example, if my boss yelled at me, I'm super stressed and anxious and upset, and I come home and I decide I need to rearrange my whole closet because that gives me a sense of control, I get to organize, and I'm actually releasing the energy through this process. Now, in order for me to optimize my sublimation, do I have to be as a person consciously like, all right, I need to go do my, I'm doing my closet because of what happened at work? Does the person have to kind of mentally make that connection or association for it to be optimized or not? I think they do. And um, I'll say that, you know, some people can develop good habits of sophisticated coping mechanisms. And so they can just do them unintentionally. And that's better than, you know, doing primitive uh, coping mechanisms unintentionally. However, if we look at uh, what Aristotle says about character development and um, when he talks about uh, a vice and a virtue, he uh, tells us that in order for some a, an act to be virtuous, it has to start with intention. So I would say uh, it, it is better to set the intention that and, and setting that intention tells me one thing. It tells me that uh, the person has accepted that they're anxious by accepting it. Um, you know, you can accept that you're having like a quote unquote negative emotional experience, like with humility, um, by in, in humility, just seeing the dignity in all living beings and in yourself. So just, uh, seeing, even though I'm anxious, you know, there's still a dignity to me and then setting the intention to express the anxiety from work and to, let's say, rearranging your closet.
Does that answer your question? Yes. Yes. Thank you. And it's great that you bring in this notion of intentionality because, you know, it's very emphasized in, you know, a lot of powerful philosophies, religions, certainly Islam, you know, the Prophet Sallallahu uh, told us in al-amalu bin-niyat that your actions are shaped by your intentions, and so I think it's very important that we associate um, or or you know make that connection within ourselves because that's actually going to shape the ritual or the release um, or whatever we're doing uh, more fully. Uh, and so you know, for example, some people who make tauba or turn back to Allah to ask forgiveness or make repentance. You know, something I've learned is that some people, when they want to make tawbah for something, like, man, I really messed up. I did this wrong. I hurt this person. Or I committed this sin in private. And, you know, I want to ask Allah for forgiveness and so forth. I've learned, Azada, that some people actually don't voice the actual sin that they're asking forgiveness for. They're just going to pray uh, two rakahs or make dua and say, oh Allah, forgive me, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, forgive me for this and make me a better person. But it's kind of like general. So I've even noticed that when people, you know, I, I've advised them, you know, you need to name uh, the actual thing you're asking Allah forgiveness for. Not because Allah doesn't know, but it's for you to be more honest and accepting of why you feel the way you feel, and based on what you actually did. When you name all of that during your, let's say, your tawbah, or you're cleaning out your closet, and you're even talking to yourself or thinking about it and associating, you know, why you're doing what you're doing, this is actually going to give us a much more fulfilling impact, perhaps. I agree. And I like how you tied in, in the intention part of it, because I think it's so useful and helpful when we're approaching Islamic psychology to integrate the different aspects of experience and by and that includes you know the Quranic message so I, I really like that um, I and I do like the the naming it I, I think that's an important piece um, during my clinical training I was working as a counselor at a K through eighth grade school, and my supervisor had a list of 10 rules that we had for the children, for like the groups. And one of her rules was, um, I mentioned it earlier, is name it to claim it. The rationale behind uh, the name it to claim it is that you can't fully like claim your behavior and, you know, repent for it and make tones for it unless you're able to, to name it. And, and I think that there's something to being able to verbalize it, even if it's just silently to yourself, because it's that's like an integration of like your left and right brain. Because the left brain is the has this verbal ability, so I, I think that's important to be able to put words to it. Absolutely, and at at Noor, one of our mottos is reveal, release, replenish. First step is we have to reveal what's going on. That's that includes self-acceptance and honesty and and sincerity with ourselves, right? Then we have to come up with ways to release or work with what's actually going on. You know, we have to accept what is before we get to what ought to be. And lastly, once we're able to release, we've emptied out those 
compartments, let's say, of our soul, of our mind, of our heart, and then we now are more fit to, let's say, replenish. So this perhaps is another kind of simple one, two, three step model to consider um, when we want to improve in ourselves. What are your thoughts? I like that, that one, two, three formula. It really breaks things down in a way that makes it uh, easier to take on as a practice. The sublimation, just to kind of close this this coping mechanism up, this transference or transforming of energy to a productive, creative action towards replacing um, the evil that's out there or that happened to me. This is, again, requires a, you know, some type of meaningful association within the self uh, to engage in a practice or a follow-up process that will uh, initiate release of this energy and processing of this energy. And sometimes it can be, you know, something like you're, you're reorganizing your closet or you're exercising, uh, or it can be like, you know what, I'm going to go now sign up to the local, uh, you know, uh, safety watch of my neighborhood because after being robbed myself, I'm now inspired to help uh, minimize this evil from happening in my neighborhood. So that, that those would all fall under sublimation. Now, maybe we can go to humor. I'd love to hear more about this because I, I love this defense mechanism. <laughs> <laughs> it is one of the funner ones. I, I've heard that this is, in some ways, it's more sophisticated. Um, it, it's been taught to me as being more sophisticated in intellectualization and uh, rationalization, actually. Um, although people have their own opinions. But yeah, I, I think that uh, humor is good because if you have like a a difficult situation is really weighing hard on you. Just being able to bring some lightness into that can really help take the edge off to uh, keep the fuel burning. Um, otherwise, like if, if you can't, if things just start getting more intense and more intense, you can't bring some lightness into a situation. You're running the risk of just uh, disassociating, checking out, giving up, you know, uh, or have like just having a little break in the moment, like, okay, that's it. Throw your hands up. I'm done. Um, so it's, it's good to be able to modulate intensity, if you will, by bringing some humor into the situation. Right. And, and of course it depends on the situation and the people you're addressing. But I mean, I know once in a while, like it can kind of break the, um, I, like the stale negative air. So for example, if let's say, you know, a spouse makes a comment that came across as, you know, kind of hurtful, but let's say I know the person pretty well and I know that's not what they meant to, you know, get across it. They're just not very good at articulating their emotions at this point. Um, I might say to the other spouse, well, that sounded very nice and warm and fuzzy for you probably, didn't it? And then they start kind of chuckling. And then the first person realizes, man, let me try that again because it didn't come across, you know, the way it should have perhaps. Would that be an example? And can you maybe give us more? Yeah, that's a good example. Let's say you're dealing with a teenage child and the teenager is like opposing you like at, you know, every like angle trying to assert their, you know, individuality, maybe just uh, making light of it and like, okay, so um, since you, you know uh, what's going on, uh, why don't you tell me what the next best thing to do is and, and just kind of like joking at them a little bit. And it's about, I think, maybe a tone. I don't know if humor came across in that or not. But the tone you use is very important. 
Absolutely. I think I can I can definitely relate and resonate with that with with children who are young and there's so many times Zada where like something can make me go in the direction of oh god why you know and you're just stressed and disappointed and like oh my god and then at, there's almost sometimes in some situations a line where you can just start cracking up about it and you're like you know this is what it is like if he just you know if let's say your child um takes 20 minutes to choose their pajamas and you're just like oh my god you know this is t- you're so frustrated but it's also so funny because they're so let's say i don't know picky about things matching a certain way and so you actually just kind of step into how cute and adorable and frustrating it is all at the same time but then the humor kind of overtakes that you know I- i'm a grown man waiting for let's say a 3 year old to figure out their wardrobe uh, so they can just sleep, and you know that's that's life right now, you know. And sometimes that can be actually funny. I don't. Know. <laughs> I mean, it's it's. Yeah, no, I see the humor in that. Uh, that's a good example. Yeah, I, I have some humorous situations with my toddler now, where I'm trying to potty train him, and I'm letting him listen to like a a YouTube video when he sits on the potty, and I think he's telling me he just has to go in the potty during the day so he can watch the YouTube video because. Because <laughs> I restrict, you know, his screen time. And so it's like the one time he gets the screen, and I don't know if I chose the best, you know, approach to this. But yeah, I find some humor in the fact that he might be taking advantage of right. my little plan to get him potty trained to just watch the screen. <laughs> Um, but let's say somebody doesn't have, you know, a good sense of humor or they don't find too many things funny in the moment. Um, I know that there is also a, a, the coping mechanism of altruism, which is considered a sophisticated one as well. Can you tell us a bit more about altruism and how that works? Right. Yeah. Altruism is a, a great sophisticated coping mechanism. It's like, let's say if I feel lonely and I'm having some symptoms commonly associated with depression due to this loneliness using altruism by like um, asking someone genuinely, how are you? And just, you know, or smiling. I know in the, uh, there's a, a sunnah that says that a smile is like a form of charity. Yeah. Or like going out to the community and like some mosques have like food, you know, banks for the uh, underprivileged, you know, and just, you know, participating in that. And as that, like, to, and, and that, even though you're not doing that, you know, for your loneliness or depression, it alleviates it. So that's a very sophisticated way to deal with this loneliness and depression versus rather uh, someone who becomes, is depressed and therefore in their depression uh, manifests in like irritability and anger outbursts. And they use projection, which is a primitive uh mechanism where they project like their anger onto other people and they'd be like what's wrong are you angry with me when really it's me like who's feeling the anger but i'm asking someone else what's wrong are you angry and and it almost in a way to instigate like some sort of interaction you know even a negative interaction it's something you know so so yeah uh, altruism is a, a lot better way to be out and interacting with people Just to summarize so far um, what I've taken away today, we've uh, learned a bit about what anxiety and stress stressors are, 
uh, that there's external and internal forms or ways that this can uh, encounter a person's life. So external means outside conditions or forces that are not always within our control. Internal um, conditions would be things that we mentally or personally conceptualize, thoughts, moods, behaviors, what we do. Then we have um, ways we can cope or deal with anxiety and stress in sophisticated as well as primitive ways. Some of the primitive ways include things like projection, denial, displacement. So projection is when I release the anxiety I carry within myself or the negative components of my own self, and I fixate that focus on others kind of as a way to almost relieve my own ego of its of its tension or its um, inner dissonance, because if I don't want to deal with the fact that I am angry or resentful or lazy, uh, so I'll just pick at that any time I see it in other people or think I see it. But most of the time, I'm actually just dealing with myself through uh, attacking another person, right? That's sometimes how projection can come across. That's accurate. Um, and remember when I said that sometimes uh, the defense mechanisms work together. I think that what happens with projection is another primitive defense mechanism of disassociation, where, which is where a person splits their thinking from their consciousness. So they're no longer like aware of how they're feeling. They're just sort of objectively analyze, an, analyzing the situation and, and like disassociating from their heart and their emotions they're therefore projecting their emotions onto another person and learning about like in in almost like maybe and then kind of watching their emotions like as as a movie how another person might you know respond if if they're accused of having the emotions right and i remember i think the one of the differences between disassociating from reality and denial is that denial is i i'm completely um reshaping what is happening. So I'm actually not perceiving fully what is happening or I am replacing what is actually happening with with whatever I want it to be or think it is. And so there is an overall kind of view that is distorted perhaps. Whereas disassociation is what's happening is happening. I'm just not fully there or participating and I'm kind of watching it happen without full immersion of my total self. Is that uh, one way to understand it? Yeah, yeah. The emphasis on the split between like you might be cognitively aware, but your thoughts are disconnected from your your feelings or, or even values. So does this mean now that the person has to, in a sense, choose to numb their feelings in their unhappy marriage and be like, well, I'm just going to turn this off my feelings and numb myself. So that way I don't have to be, you know, triggered or charged or stimulated each time my spouse cries or complains or, you know, goes to her family's house for the weekend or his family's house or whatever. Is that what's happening with dissociation? It's like, I need to convince myself that there are no emotions to feel period. Yes, um, that is. So disassociation, it happens from when someone, it starts commonly in sexual abuse. Um, when people are sexually abused, they, uh, it's just so emotionally overwhelming for them that they sort of like cut their emotions and numb their emotions at the time. And um, like they're aware of what's going on, but they just um, have emotionally like cut themselves off from the trauma to protect themselves. So, um, 
so it does like, you know, this is how, you know, it, it it can happen. Um, it can also happen in a more like, yeah, in, in a marriage where you're numbing off like the constant fighting. But when it happens in like, um, when like in a real traumatic like background experience, um, what I would say the person presents as blanking out um, mm-hmm. a lot. And so, so that is just something that has to, that response styles towards stress can happen later in life when it's, it's not a big trauma. It's a lesser, you know, manageable trauma, but since the go-to habit of uh, stress is to disassociate, the person can sort of blank out when what's really needed is maybe action in that moment or some other response. Got it. Thank you for that. So the sophisticated coping mechanisms that we also reviewed a bit today was sublimation. So this idea of transferring the pain or the or the you know the the tense energy and charge into something more productive, creative, um, organizing action or some kind of an action that will pursue replacing this evil. Or, or minimizing it for yourself and others, uh, you know. And Carl Jung, who is a student of of uh, Sigmund Freud, and kind of broke off into his own school of thought. He had a very profound statement, Azada, which he said, you know, the evil that you've gone through is a measure of what good you're capable of, you know, attaining and giving to others, right? Which is fascinating because it ties in this idea also of um, in the Quran you have these themes, you know that. Why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala test us or why do we have challenges in our life? In other words, things don't always go smoothly and life isn't going to be this consistent stream of bliss. It's just not how it's going to be for anybody. Uh, Allah says, we will test all of you, right? With matters of health and wealth and children, iman. And often these verses have this notion of in order to see who will, you know, be patient, and persevere, who will seek truth as a result of this, right? Because there should be a sense of wanting to know why did that happen or what's going on, whether within me or in my society, how do we make this better? If everybody's just living this super comfortable, bubbled life, then what pursuit or innovation and creativity will we have to make the world a better place? If once in a while, we don't get stung by some of those thorns of life, right? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds us, لِيَبْلُوكُمْ أَيُّكُمْ أَحْسَنُ amala and other explanations like have sabr and uh, taqwa and remembrance of me, etc. But this idea of we test you in order to bring out your, your inner element, like the word bala, one of its meanings is to bring out your inner element or inner gold, if you will, right? And Allah doesn't want plastic. He wants people that are going to chisel themselves into diamonds and gold and, and these things because all those things like samurai sword has to go through heat and poundings and cooling and reshaping and then it becomes this powerful, gorgeous you know, symbol of the soul. You know, a samurai sword is what I'm talking about here as an analogy. And it can cut through anything. It becomes solid and strong and sharp as well as aesthetic and beautiful and a symbol of power and the soul. So we human beings also, in a sense, are being chiseled or there's a type of existential blacksmithing that's happening. And this is, I think, how we may even associate coping mechanisms. Because if Allah says, لِيَبْلُوكُمْ we test you or want to bring out the best in you through these tests, 
in order to see who will have the most excellent responses or the best of responses because ihsan and comes from uh, hasan and hasana which means to improve or do what is better or best or more excellent so in a sense all coping mechanisms like we learned today there's bad ways to deal with it or unhealthy ways or damaging ways and then there's healthy ways and more excellent or better ways to deal with it so it's it, subhanallah it all ties in here as far as human development and transformation um i we talked a little bit about intellectualization rationalization sublimation humor and altruism and uh, we briefly touched upon humility, which is seeing the dignity in all human, in other human beings, and even in oneself. And that I think does kind of work against like pride. Like pride would be in the more primitive version, but humility is a more sophisticated version. Yeah, a, a good starting point for a sophisticated would be to start with humility. Yeah, لَقَدْ قَرَّمْنَا بَنِي Adam, As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Qur'an, as well as, you know, every self is very precious. And if you, you know, kill a, a self unjustly, it's as if you killed the whole world. So there's a lot of weight there, right? لَقَدْ قَرَّمْنَا بَنِي Adam means we have dignified and given integrity or honor to all the children of Adam, which means all human beings. And so by having that standpoint... Um, and really trying to perceive that in our day-to-day -day life. In other words, this person, even though they may not be my religion, my ethnicity, my socioeconomic class, they still have inherent dignity and honor that Allah placed in them by default because they're from my human family. This is what you're talking about, Azada, as a good starting point for coping mechanisms, uh, sophisticated. Now, why is that going to help us? Is it because it will help counter or cure the disease of pride, which could eventually evolve into things like arrogance and narcissism? Yes. Tell us more about that. The way I see it is a, a lot of the narcissism and maybe some of the primitive like ways of responding they do come from pride maybe a pride where i don't want to feel the gravity of the thing i did wrong because i'm too good or according to my own self measure so that, that would be a prideful way to look at things or i don't want other people's perception to change they see me as the ideal you know whatever so i don't want to you know deal with that branding being messed up so i'm gonna you know not be humble about my problems or my mistake perhaps. great and it could lead to unnecessary arguments and or even arguments that are out of proportion when maybe there's something that should be disagreed upon, but then that argument gets taken out of proportion. That could be, you know, a, coming from pride. I think humility is a good way to start because if you see the dignity in other people, it's, it can be a motivator to want to become a better person if, you know, it's not just in you to do it on your own. So yeah, that's, that's why I would start with humility. And what would be some ways besides perceiving human beings as, you know, honorable and uh, they all have a value uh, by default? Uh, so that already kind of sets the stance we should have with people because, you know, we should never assume we're better than anybody else or that they're worse than us or even better than us. Right. And so kind of starting on that kind of uh, clean slate with our encounters with people 
especially ones we've never met, I think is is one way to manifest that. And second, what if I am already in the thick of, let's say, you know, difficult family relations or dynamics? How do I now start to be humble with, let's say, a family member who I only associate with tons of critique and devaluing of myself? In a situation like that, if the other family member is devaluing you, I would exercise humility in that so that your responses aren't out of proportion. For example, if somebody in your family insults you, it might bring out the worst in you and you might, you know, say something terrible and respond in out of proportion when maybe a better way would just be to walk away. But because your pride was involved, you acted in ways that now you're carrying around and it hurts you. That's great feedback. Thank you, Azada. Now, sublimation, um, we discussed some tools there or ways to manifest that. Uh, so it's transferring this energy. And one of the things we discussed was, you know, recognizing and accepting what difficulty just happened to you and then consciously associating or meaningfully connecting that with some sort of a ritual or practice or activity that releases that energy for that purpose or intent. Um, is there any other tools or ways that we can start, you know, recognizing and applying sublimation in our daily lives? One way, and it seems subtle, But it's something that can be done at any point in time, and that's deep breathing exercises. I'm going to say it's good to have in your pocket a couple strategies to help you go from, let's say, on a scale of one through 10, one being comfortable, 10 being intensely, you know, painfully, intensely stressed out, to go from like a a seven or eight down to a four or five in 15 minutes. Like what are some pocket strategies you can have from decreasing your stress level from seven, eight down to four or five? Um, Deep breathing is a great one because you can do it whenever you want. It's not, you could do it in line waiting for the DMV. You could do it out at, at work or, you know, grocery shopping. Right. Discussing a difficult subject with, with somebody that matters to you. All, all those things are, you know, moment. I mean, you have to breathe anyways. But trying to take slower, deeper breaths is what we're referring to here, right? So breathing slowly through the nostrils and exhaling slowly out of the mouth. This actually helps recirculate that energy that's that's coming up for us and releasing it. So that's actually a, a real way that you release the charge or the energy simply through breathing. Correct. And and that is one way by channeling the stress into your breathing, um, breathing exercises. What you're not doing is somatizing the stress, which the stress becomes somatized when you're you're stressed out and your heart starts beating fast and your palms start getting sweaty. Your breath starts speeding up by consciously like slowing down. Um, you're controlling your heart rate. Your nervous system is going to give your brain the message that you're stressed out if your heart rate is and your breathing are fast. So you want your nervous system to kind of give you the message that you're relaxed. I tell people to take like three to ten deep breaths on four count inhale, hold the breath for two counts, and like a four count exhalation. And doing that at least three to 10 times, it can be done pretty much anywhere. It's not like, for example, I relax when I sit down and I have 
cup of tea I like, but it's not always possible for me to just sit down and drink tea to relax. So the, the breathing technique is helpful. Another helpful practice is to remember the 99 attributes of a law in order to uh, soften the heart. This uh, remembrance in times of difficulty and stress, you know, can, can, well, like I said, it softens the heart because like, let's say the stress is like causing you to tense up and your muscles are tensing up. And in that tensing up, your heart is kind of tensing up as well, hardening. And so just to kind of stop that and pause and just Ponder the 99 attributes of a law, soften the heart, is one strategy you can do at any time, like the breathing. A third strategy that could be done that's effective is to just start tracking yourself. And what I mean by tracking yourself is, to, and this is more of a cognitive behavioral approach, which requires a tracking of yourself, is like, what is my thought right now? Acknowledging that whatever thought you have is going to be associated to an emotional response. So what is my thought right now? Is it and, and what is associated emotion? And if my thought is negative and my emotional state is negative, constantly choosing to just entertain a positive alternative thought and being open to noticing the subtle shifts that start happening in your emotional experience. And then, you know, choosing, you know, do you want to have this more positive thought? This is also something that can be done on your feet. It can be done, you know, anywhere. It just, you know, takes about, you just have to pause for about, you know, five to ten seconds in order to do this. That can even be done in the middle of a heated argument with a family member. You can be like, um, you know, what we're discussing is really important to me. I want to take a quick pause so I can consolidate my inner resources and give the response that is necessary in, for this situation. I would say it includes this idea of visualization as well, because a lot of stress and anxiety comes from, you know, we think something really like, let's say something bad didn't happen, but we're really worried about the worst case scenario. So that is us. We keep replicating the negative visualization of the outcome. So you're also suggesting that we want to, um, you know, and, and again, all these tie in. So for certainly the, the names and attributes of God, you know, I think that people should see that practice that you mentioned earlier as if I feel like I'm lacking something, in myself, that that attribute of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that is fulfilling of that uh, is the one I could, let's say, harness. So for example, if I'm wicked stressed or anxious about my job interview tomorrow, um, I would take those deep breaths and remember the names of Ar-Razzaq, Al-Ghani, you know, the provider, the wealthy. In other words, I'm stressed because if I don't get this job, I won't have a salary and yada yada. So I, I call upon those names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that uh, take care of those things or that those things are orchestrate them. It doesn't mean I'm going to get the job tomorrow. But the point here is that the one who's going to provide for me is Allah anyways. And this job or another job are simply the means. So pulling in those uh, divine attributes and names is very important. And I would say that connecting it to the last portion of, you know, when we visualize something more balanced or healthy or positive, we are more likely going to forge that um, forward. And I also wanted to emphasize the importance of not just using one mechanism or coping strategy for every situation. It's like trying to use a, a hammer for every time you need a home repair. So even though the hammer is a great tool, we want to consider the situation. 
Um, and I also wanted to reemphasize the importance that there is a healthy stress and anxiety in life that will help us develop. And so we don't want to eliminate all stress and anxiety. We just want to have a positive relationship to it so that we can grow and develop as human beings and community. When stress and anxiety becomes at a level where maybe you should uh, seek help, uh, reach out to a trusted uh, person or a, a provider in the community, is when the anxiety starts to create and an impairment in important areas of your life, for example, your your health, your spiritual and religious practice, your occupational area of life, or your social area of life. For example, if being the, the perfect practicing Muslim becomes like a source of stress for you, so that, that that stress becomes so intense that you just cut off from the whole idea of trying, you know, then that that's uh, created a functional impairment and, and the anxiety and stress should be addressed with uh, maybe another person or provider. Or if the anxiety and stress is creating you to be an irritable person and your muscles are tense um, and this is causing you to pick little unnecessary arguments with your spouse and family members and children, you know, then maybe you should seek some help to get some support around how you're relating to the anxiety. My closing comments from an Islamic psychological model is that these sophisticated coping mechanisms that we discussed as it almost shows me that uh, just like Islamic, Islam teaches us, in order for us to overcome the worldly challenges uh, of the body, of the environments that we're in, of the survival mechanisms that we're all navigating on a day-to-day -day basis, the sophisticated coping mechanisms or way of, of functioning at a higher level uh, is really this idea of Allah telling us how to see who of you will respond with patience, with truth, with honesty, and in the most excellent uh, way, right? How do we respond in the best ways? In other words, how do I maintain functionality? How do I truly reveal what's going on, release it, and replenish it properly? This is all part of the Islamic etiquette of transforming you know, your humanity and your spirituality. So it's all connected here that just by using the intellect, using altruism, using sublimation, these are all healthy Islamic mechanisms to also work with the self because it's all interconnected here. So I, I just think it's really um, lovely to see how that all ties together. And breathing is one of my favorite coping mechanisms of all time because A, it's so easy. We all need it. And it even ties Islamic uh, Islamically this idea of your spirit or ruh is connected to the air element in Arabic. Breath in, is connected to self, right? And self is connected to all the other two as well as life. So spirit gives life, breath maintains life, and the self is a precious life. So it's all connected there. So I think even just breathing alone, there's so much treasure there. But, uh, you know, we'll have to wrap up for today. And inshallah, next time we will continue with more topics to help our audience think brilliant, feel brighter, and do better. Don't forget to visit nudehuman.com today to work with myself or Dr. Azada. We currently have autumn promos. 
check it out today before our promo ends. Dr. Azada, thank you so much for your wisdom and sharing today. I look forward to our next meeting. You're welcome, Kareem. It's a pleasure, as always, to be on the show. 